Hey everybody, I'm Jace, and this is the Millennial Mariner Podcast. I'll be doing a series every Wednesday and Friday where I'll read a short story from both major publications and more obscure magazines and journals, and analyze and discuss the writing techniques and moves that the authors use to make each story tick. Join me as I read these stories and take them apart to better understand what goes into writing and even telling an effective and compelling story. Hey everybody, happy March. I haven't said happy March yet and it's already, we're already in the second week of March, but I also want to say happy Women's History Month. And yeah, I'm very grateful for all of the women in my life and all the women throughout history that have done so much to not only help the improvement of women's rights, but also to help the the rights of everybody around around the world. And I think that it's just say, I want, I I don't know, I guess I want to invite all of you before I get started with what I'm going to be reading today. I want to invite each of you to express gratitude to the women around you because they absolutely deserve it. And yeah. So with, with that in mind, I have decided to read something a little bit longer. I'm reading a novella. I'll be doing this over the span of three, possibly four episodes, depending on how far I'm able to get through these episodes. But what I'm going to be reading today is something that has recently been put into the public domain, and that is Virginia Woolf's 1925 short novel slash novella, Mrs. Dalloway. And I just, I really, I really like this novella. I really like, uh, yeah, I really like Virginia Woolf's writing. I think she's a very, very good writer. And I'm just excited to be able to share this with you. And so the thing that I want to talk about before jumping into the reading, I want want to introduce who Virginia Woolf is, because chances are, if you haven't studied English, or if you're not like into and not particularly into early 20th century writing, you probably don't know who Virginia Woolf is. So I'll introduce Virginia Woolf, and then I'll introduce what, you've probably heard this term used before. I know that I, I know people who use it a lot outside of writing, but I'm going to be talking a little bit about stream of consciousness writing and what that means and how that can be done effectively or ineffectively and how that is done effectively in Mrs. Dalloway. So with that being said, here is Virginia Woolf. So I'm on her, not on her, I'm on the Wikipedia page about her because she died in the 1940s. So couldn't have made a Wikipedia page for herself. I don't know who does that, but that'd be weird. Anyway, so here is Virginia Woolf here on the right. It's a photo of her in 1902. So Adeline Virginia Woolf was born January 25th, 1882, and died March 28th, 1941. She was an English writer, considered one of the most important modernist 20th century writers, and also a pioneer in the use of stream of consciousness as a narrative device. So before I move up, move forward with that, I want to give a little bit of background with uh, modernist stuff, and then we'll jump into the stream of consciousness after I give a little bit more biographical stuff on Virginia Woolf. So during the modernist period, uh, there was a lot of experimentation with form and experimentation with voice in both fiction, poetry, and also the theater. And one of the many, like there are so many things that happen in modernism, that modernism is just a huge kind of catch-all phrase that's used to define the group of people who were writing from roughly the late 1800s to about 1940, 1950, that's kind of the range that people, that's a soft range. A lot of people say that it was mostly just from the 1920s to the 1940s, but it really, the span of modernism depends on who you're talking to. But there was a lot of experimentation, like I said, Virginia Woolf was one who utilized a stream of consciousness writing as a form of narrative voices it says here and, and another one who another writer who uses that a lot and especially in one two of his three yeah, three of his novels is James Joyce James Joyce uses stream of consciousness writing in a portrait of the, the artist as a young man Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses so you see stream of consciousness writing in that where it, 
and we'll I'll explain what stream of consciousness writing is when we get to that point. But I'll read. I'll continue with Virginia Woolf's biography here. Woolf was born into an affluent household in South Kensington, London, the seventh child in a blended family of eight, which included the modernist painter Vanessa Bell. Her mother was Julia Princip Jackson, and her father Leslie Stephen. While the boys in the family received college educations. The girls were homeschooled in English classics and Victorian literature. An important influence in Virginia Woolf's life was the summer home the family used in St. Ives, Cornwall, where in the late 1890s, she first saw the Godry Lighthouse, which was to become central to her novel, To the Lighthouse, published in 1927. Woolf's childhood came to an abrupt end in 1895 with the death of her mother and her first mental breakdown, followed two years later by the death of her half-sister, and a mother figure to her, Stella Duckworth. From 1897 to 1901, she attended the ladies' department of King's College London, where she studied classics and history and came into contact with early reformers of women's higher education and the women's rights movement. Other important figures were her Cambridge-educated brothers and unfettered access to her father's vast library. Encouraged by her father, Wolfe began writing professionally in 1900. Her father's death in 1904 caused Wolfe to have another mental breakdown. Following his death, the Stephen family moved from Kensington to the more bohemian Bloomsbury, where they adopted a free-spirited lifestyle. It was in Bloomsbury where, in conjunction with the brothers' intellectual friends, they formed the artistic and literary Bloomsbury group. In 1912, she married Leonard Wolfe, and in 1917, the couple founded the Hogarth Press which published much of her work. They rented a home in Sussex and moved there permanently in 1940. Throughout her life, Wolf was troubled by her mental illness. She was institutionalized several times and attempted suicide at least twice. Her illness may have been bipolar disorder for which there was no effective intervention during her lifetime. In 1941, at age 59, Wolf died by drowning herself in the River Ouse in Lewis. During the interwar period, Wolfe was an important part of London's literary and artistic society. In 1915, she published her first novel, The Voyage Out, through her half-brother's publishing house, Gerald Duckworth and Company. Her best-known works include the novels Mrs. Dalloway, published in 1925, To the Lighthouse, published in 1927, and Orlando, published in 1928. She is also known for her essays, including A Room of One's Own, published in 1929, in which she wrote the much-quoted dictum, a woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. Wolf became one of the central subjects of the 1970s movement of feminist criticism, and her works have since garnered much attention and widespread commentary for inspiring feminism. Her works have been translated into more than 50 languages. A large body of literature is dedicated to her life and work, and she has been the subject of plays, novels, and films. Wolf is commemorated today by statues, societies dedicated to her work, and a building at the University of London. So that's a little bit about Virginia Woolf. I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about stream of consciousness writing, and I'm only going to read the kind of beginning part of it just so that it's, I, I'm not going to take too, too much time introducing it, you know, because I want to jump into the, the novel itself, but uh, it says here, and this is on the Wikipedia page, and I will include a link to this in um, the show notes of this podcast episode. So it says here, in literary criticism, stream of consciousness is a narrative mode or method that attempts to, quote, depict the multitudinous thoughts and feelings which pass through the mind of a narrator. The term was coined by Alexander Bain in 1855 in the first edition of The Senses and the Intellect, when he wrote, the concurrence of sensations in one common stream of consciousness on the same cerebral highway enables those of different senses to be associated as readily as the sensations of the same sense. But it is commonly credited to William James, who used it in 1890 in his Principles of Psychology. In 1918, the novelist Mason Clare first applied the term stream of consciousness in a literary context when discussing Dorothy Richardson's novels. Pointed Roofs, published in 1915, the first work of Richardson's series of 13 semi-autobiographical novels titled Pilgrimage, is the first complete stream of consciousness novel published in English. However, in 1934, Richardson comments that Proust, so Marcel Proust, James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, and D.R. were all using the new method, though very differently, simultaneously. There were, however, many early precursors, and the technique is still used by contemporary writers. So a short definition of 
stream of consciousness is a narrative device that attempts to give the written equivalent of the character's thought processes, either in a loose interior monologue or in connection to his or her actions. Stream of consciousness writing is usually regarded as a special form of interior monologue and is characterized by associative leaps in thought and lack of some or all punctuation. Stream of consciousness and inner monologue are distinguished from dramatic monologue and soliloquy where the speaker is addressing an audience or a third person, which are directly used in poetry or drama. In stream of consciousness, the speaker's thought processes are more often depicted as overheard in the mind or addressed to oneself. It is primarily a fictional device. So an early use of the term is found in, as, as mentioned earlier, in philosopher and psychologist William James's The Principles of Psychology published in 1890. He says, Consciousness then does not appear to itself as chopped up in bits. It is nothing joined. It flows. A river or a stream are the metaphors by which it is most naturally described. In talking of it hereafter, let's call it the stream of thought, consciousness, or subjective life. So that's a little bit about it. Like just to kind of synthesize that, stream of consciousness writing is the use of interior monologue that may or may not be totally connected uh, to each other. And sometimes it can kind of be a little divergent to what's totally going on. And, and one of the main criticisms of stream of consciousness writing, especially with modernist writers, is that they get so, sometimes the, the interior monologue and the interior like stuff going on in the person's head kind of goes a little too far off the narrative path. And so it, it takes, sometimes it, it might take people out of what is going on and kind of deter people from reading stream of consciousness. So with all this being said, this is a little bit, uh, I, I, yeah, this is, I think this is important information to know when it comes to jumping into something like Virginia Woolf's short novel, Mrs. Dalloway. So yeah, with that being said, I want to jump into Mrs. Dalloway. And like, uh, like I read earlier, Mrs. Dalloway was published originally in 1925. And it, it, um, in this, she employs a lot of uh, modernist techniques, the most predominant of which is the use of stream of consciousness writing. You might be able to recognize when that is happening and you'll be able to see it because you'll start thinking, is this something like, are we kind of going into a different story? Are we going into a different novel? Are we going into just kind of something completely different? You might feel a little lost, but it's okay. She brings it back. And I think that she does, she uses this interior monologue, this stream of consciousness writing in a very effective and very moving way. And in addition to Virginia Woolf's use of stream of consciousness writing, she also uses what is called in, in writing head hopping. And so you'll see a little bit of head hopping as well. And what I mean by head hopping is you'll see in what we will be reading, Virginia Woolf start with one character and get the interiority and inner monologue of that one character and then another character will we'll get the perspective of another character and then another character and another character after that and so on and so forth and, and so it might seem a little bit confusing but i will after reading the each section of this novel i will kind of give a recap of the narratological events happening so yeah so without further ado, here is Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, for Lucy had her work cut out for her. The doors would be taken off their hinges. Rumpelmeyer's men were coming, and then, thought Clarissa Dalloway, what a morning, fresh as if issued to children on a beach. What a lark, what a plunge for so it had always seemed to her when, with a little squeak of the hinges, which she could hear now, she had burst open the French windows and plunged at bourbon into the open air. How fresh, how calm, stiller than this, of course. The air was in the early morning, like the flap of a wave, the kiss of a wave, chill and sharp, and yet, for a girl of 18, as she was then, solemn, feeling as she did, standing there at the open window, that something awful was about to happen, looking at the flowers, at the trees with the smoke winding off them and rooks rising, falling, standing and looking until Peter Walsh said, musing among the vegetables. Was that it? 
I prefer men to cauliflowers. Was that it? He must have said it at breakfast one morning when she had gone out on the terrace. Peter Walsh, he would be back from India one of these days, June or July. She forgot which, for his letters were awfully dull. It was his sayings one remembered, his eyes, his pocket knife, his smile, his grumpiness, and when millions of things had utterly vanished, how strange it was, a few sayings like this about cabbages. She stiffened a little on the curb, waiting for Dirtnal's van to pass. A charming woman, Scrope Purvis thought her, knowing her as one does know people who live next door to one in Westminster, a touch of the bird about her, of the jay, blue-green light, vivacious, though she was over fifty and grown very white since her illness. There she perched, never seeing him, waiting to cross, very upright. For having lived in Westminster how many years now, over twenty, one feels even in the midst of the traffic or walking at night, Clarissa was positive a particular hush or solemnity, an indescribable pause, a suspense. But that might be her heart, affected, they said, by influenza, before Big Ben strikes. There, out it boomed, first a warning, musical, then the hour irrevocable. The leaden circles dissolved in the air. Such fools we are, she thought, crossing Victoria Street. For heaven only knows why one loves it so, how one sees it so, making it up, building it round one, tumbling it, creating it every moment afresh, but the veriest frumps, the most dejected of miseries sitting on doorsteps, drink their downfall, do the same, can't deal with it, she felt positive, by the acts of parliament for the very reason, they love life. In people's eyes, in the swing, tramp, and trudge, in the bellow and the uproar, the carriages, motor cars, omnibuses, bands, sandwich men shuffling and swinging, brass bands, barrel organs, in the triumph and the jungle and the strange high singing of some aeroplane overhead was what she loved, life. London, this moment of June. For it was the middle of June, the war was over except for someone like Mrs. Foxcrot at the embassy last night, eating her heart out because that nice boy was killed and now the old manor house must go to a cousin or Lady Bexborough, who opened a bazaar, they said, with the telegram in her hand, John, her favorite, killed. But it was over, thank heaven, over. It was June. The king and queen were at the palace, and everywhere, though it was still so early, there was a beating, a stirring of galloping ponies, tapping of cricket bats, lords, ascot, ranelagh, and all the rest of it, wrapped in soft mesh of the gray-blue morning air, which, as the day wore on, would unwind them, and set down on their lawns and pitches the bouncing ponies whose forefeet just struck the ground and up they sprung, the whirling young men and laughing girls in their transparent muslins, who even now, after dancing all night, were taking their absurd woolly dogs for a run. And even now, at this hour, discreet old dowagers were shooting out in their motor cars on errands of mystery, and the shopkeepers were fidgeting in their windows with their paste and diamonds, their lovely old sea green brooches in 18th century settings of to tempt Americans, but one must economize, not buy things rashly for Elizabeth. And she too, loving it as she did with an absurd and faithful passion, being part of it since her people were courtiers once in the time of the Georges, she too was going that very night to kindle and illuminate, to give her party, but how strange on entering the park, the silence, the mist, the hum, the slow-swimming happy ducks, the pouch birds waddling, and who should be coming along with his back against the government buildings most appropriately carrying a dispatch box stamped with the royal arms. Who but Hugh Whitbread, her old friend Hugh, the admirable Hugh. Good morning to you, Clarissa, said Hugh, rather extravagantly, for they had known each other as children. Where are you off to? I love walking in London, said Mrs. Dalloway. Really, it's better than walking in the country. They had just come up, unfortunately, to see doctors. Other people come to see pictures, go to the opera, take their daughters out, the Whitbreads came to see doctors. Times without number, Clarissa had visited Evelyn Whitbread in a nursing home. Was Evelyn ill again? Evelyn was a good deal out of sorts, said Hugh, intimating by a kind of pout or swell of his very well-covered, manly, extremely handsome, perfectly upholstered body. He was almost too well-dressed always, but presumably had to be with his little job at court. That his wife had some internal ailment, nothing serious, which 
as an old friend, Clarissa Dalloway would quite understand without requiring him to specify. Ah, yes, she did, of course. What a nuisance. And felt very sisterly and oddly conscious at the same time of her hat. Not the right hat for the early morning, was that it? For Hugh always made her feel, as he bustled on, raising his hat rather extravagantly and assuring her that she might be a girl of 18. And of course, he was coming to her party tonight. Evelyn absolutely insisted only a little late he might be after the party at the palace to which he had to take one of Jim's boys. She always felt a little skimpy beside Hugh, schoolgirlish, but attached to him, partly from having known him always. But she did think him a good sort in his own way. Though Richard was nearly driven mad by him, and as for Peter Walsh, he had never to this day forgiven her for liking him. She could remember scene after scene at Burton, Peter furious, Hugh, not of course, his match in any way, but still, not a positive imbecile, as Peter made out, not a mere barber's block. When his old mother wanted him to give up shooting or to take her to bath, he did it, without a word. He was really unselfish, and, as for saying, as Peter did, that he had no heart, no brain, nothing but the manners and breeding of an English gentleman. That was only her dear Peter at his worst. And he could be intolerable, he could be impossible, but adorable to walk with on a morning like this. June had drawn out every leaf on the trees. The mothers of Pimlico gave suck to their young. Messages were passing from the fleet to the Admiralty. Arlington Street and Piccadilly seemed to chafe the very air in the park and lift its leaves hotly, brilliantly, on leaves of that divine vitality which Clarissa loved, to dance, to ride, she had adored all that. For they might be parted for hundreds of years, she and Peter. She never wrote a letter, and his were dry sticks, but suddenly it would come over her. If he were with me now, what would he say? Some days, some nights, bringing him back to her calmly, without the old bitterness, which was perhaps the reward of having cared for people. They came back in the middle of St. James Park on a fine morning. Indeed, they did. But Peter, however beautiful the day might be, and the trees and the grass and the little girl in pink, Peter never saw a thing of all that. He would put on his spectacles if she told him to. He would look. It was the state of the world that interested him. Wagner, Pope's poetry, people's characters eternally, and the defects of her own soul— how he scolded her, how they argued. She would marry a prime minister and stand up at the top of a staircase. The perfect hostess, he called her. She had cried over it in her bedroom. She had the makings of the perfect hostess, he said. So she would still find herself arguing in St. James Park, still making out that she had been right. And she had too, not to marry him. For in marriage, a little license, a little independence, there must be between people living together day in and day out in the same house, which Richard gave her, and she him. Where was he this morning, for instance? Some committee? She had asked what. But with Peter, everything had to be shared, everything gone into. It was intolerable. And when it came to that scene in the little garden by the fountain, she had to break with him, or they would have been destroyed. Both of them ruined, she was convinced. Though she had borne about her for years like an arrow sticking in her heart, the grief, the anguish, and then the horror of the moment when someone told her at a concert that he had married a woman met on the boat going to India. And never should she forget all that. Cold, heartless, a prude, he called her. Never could she understand how he cared. But those Indian women did presumably. Silly, pretty, flimsy nincompoops. And she wasted her pity for he was quite happy. He assured her, perfectly happy, though he had never done a thing that they talked of. His whole life had been a failure. It made her angry still. She had, <clears throat> she had reached the park gates. She stood for a moment looking at the omnibuses in Piccadilly. She could not say of anyone in the world now that they were this or that. She felt very young, at the same time unspeakably aged. She sliced like a knife through everything, at the same time was outside looking on. She had a perpetual sense, as she watched the taxicabs, of being out, out, far out to sea and alone. She always had the feeling that it was very, very dangerous to live even one day. Not that she thought herself clever or much out of the ordinary. How she got through life on the few twigs of knowledge Fraulein Daniels gave them, she could not think. She knew nothing, no language, no history. She scarcely read a book now, except memoirs in bed. And yet to her, it was absolutely absorbing. All this, the cabs passing, and she would not say of Peter, she would not say of herself, I am this, I am that. Her only gift was knowing people almost by instinct, she thought, walking on. If you put her in a room with someone, 
Up went her back like a cat's, or she purred. Devonshire house, bath house, the house with the china cockatoo. She had seen them all lit up once and remembered Sylvia, Fred, Sally Sutton, such hosts of people, and dancing all night, and the wagons plodding past the market and driving home across the park. She remembered once throwing a shilling into the serpentine, but everyone remembered. What she loved was this, here, now, in front of her, the fat lady in the cab. Did it matter then? She asked herself, walking towards Bond Street. Did it matter that she must inevitably cease completely? All this must go on without her. Did she resent it, or did it not become consoling to believe that death ended absolutely, but that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things, here, there, she survived, Peter survived, lived in each other, she being part, she was positive of the trees at home, of the house there, ugly, rambling all to bits and pieces as it was, part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best who lifted her on the branches as she had seen the trees lift the mist. But it spread over so far, her life, herself. But what was she dreaming as she looked into Hatchard's shop window? What was she trying to recover? What image of white dawn in the country as she read in the books spread open? Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. The late age of the world's experience had bred in them all, all men and women, a well of tears, tears and sorrows, courage and endurance, a perfectly upright and stoical bearing. Think, for example, of the women she admired most, Lady Bexborough opening the bazaar. There were Jorocks, Johnson and Jollities. There were Soapy Sponge and Mrs. Asquith's memoirs and big game shooting in Nigeria, all spread open. Ever so many books were there, but none that seemed exactly right to take to Evelyn Whitbread in her nursing home. Nothing that would serve to amuse her and make that indescribably dried up little woman look as Clarissa came in just a moment just for a moment cordial, before they settled down for the usual interminable talk of women's ailments. How much she wanted it, that people should look pleased as she came in. Clarissa thought and turned and walked back towards Bond Street, annoyed because it was silly to have other reasons for doing things. Much rather would she have been one of those people like Richard who did things for themselves, whereas she thought waiting to cross half the time she did things not simply, not for themselves. But to make people think this or that, perfect idiocy, she knew. And now the policeman held up his hand. For no one was ever for a second taken in. Oh, if she could have had her life over again, she thought, stepping on the pavement, could have looked even differently. She would have been, in the first place, dark little Lady Bexborough, with a skin of crumpled leather and beautiful eyes. She would have been like Lady Bexborough, slow and stately, rather large, interested in politics like a man with a country house, very dignified, very sincere, instead of which she had a narrow pea-stick figure, a ridiculous little face, beaked like a bird's, that she held herself was true, and had nice hands and feet, and dressed well, considering that she spent little. But often now, this body she wore, she stopped to look at a Dutch picture. This body, with all its capacities, seemed nothing, nothing at all. She had the oddest sense of being herself invisible, unseen, unknown, there being no more marrying, no more having of children now, but only this astonishing and rather solemn progress with the rest of them up Bond Street, this being Mrs. Dalloway. Not even Clarissa anymore, this being Mrs. Richard Dalloway. Bond Street fascinated her. Bond Street early in the morning in the seas, its flags flying, its shops, no splash, no glitter. One roll of tweed in the shop where her father had bought his suits for 50 years. A few pearls, salmon on an ice block. That is all, she said, looking at the fishmongers. That is all, she repeated, pausing for a moment at the window of a glove shop where, before the war, you could buy almost perfect gloves. And her old Uncle William used to say, a lady is known by her shoes and her gloves. He had turned on his bed one morning in the middle of the war. He had said, I have had enough. Gloves and shoes. She had a passion for gloves, but her own daughter, her Elizabeth, cared not a straw for either of them. Not a straw, she thought, going on up Bond Street to a shop where they kept flowers for her when she gave a party. Elizabeth really cared for her dog most of all. The whole house this morning smelled of tar. Still, better poor grizzle than Miss Kilman, better distemper and tar and all the rest of it than sitting mewed in a stuffy bedroom with a prayer book. Better anything, she was inclined to say. But it might be only a phase, as Richard said, such as all girls go through. It might be falling in love, but 
Why with Miss Kilman, who had been badly treated, of course? One must make allowances for that. And Richard said she was very able, had a really historical mind. Anyhow, they were inseparable. And Elizabeth, her own daughter, went to communion. And how she dressed, how she treated people who came to lunch, she did not care a bit. It being her experience that the religious ecstasy made people callous, so did causes, doled their feelings for Miss Kilman would do anything for the Russians, starve herself for the Austrians, but in private inflicted positive torture, so insensitive she was, dressed in a green Macintosh coat. Year in, year out, she wore that coat. She perished. She was never in the room five minutes without making you feel her superiority, your inferiority, how poor she was, how rich you were, how she lived in a slum without a cushion or a bed or a rug or whatever it might be. All her soul rusted with that grievance sticking in it. Her dismissal from school during the war, poor, embittered, unfortunate creature. For it was not her one hated, but the idea of her, which undoubtedly had gathered into itself a great deal that was not Miss Kilman had become one of those specters with which one battles in the night, one of those specters who stand astride us and suck up half our lifeblood, dominators and tyrants. For no doubt with another throw of the dice, had the black been uppermost and not the white, she would have loved Miss Kilman, but not in this world, no. It rasped her though, to have stirring about in her this brutal monster, to hear twigs cracking and feel hooves planted down in the depths of that leaf-encumbered forest. The soul, never to be content or quite secure. For any moment, the brute would be stirring this hatred, which, especially since her illness, had power to make her feel scraped, hurt in her spine, gave her physical pain, and made all pleasure and beauty in friendship and being well, in being loved and making her home delightful rock, quiver, and bend as if indeed there were a monster grubbing at the roots, as if the whole panoply of content were nothing but self-love, this hatred. Nonsense, nonsense, she cried to herself, pushing through the swing doors of Mulberry's The Florist. She advanced, light, tall, very upright, to be greeted at once by button-faced Miss Pym, whose hands were always bright red, as if they had been stood in cold water with flowers. There were flowers, delphiniums, sweet peas, bunches of lilac, and carnations, masses of carnations. There were roses. There were irises. Ah, yes. So she breathed in the earthly garden's sweet smell as she stood talking to Miss Pym, who owed her help and thought her kind. For kind, she had been years ago. Very kind, but she looked older this year, turning her head from side to side among the irises and roses and nodding tufts of lilac with her eyes half-closed, snuffling in. After the street uproar, the delicious scent, the exquisite coolness. And then, opening her eyes, how fresh, like frilled linen, clean from laundry, laid in wicker trays, the roses looked, and dark and prim the red carnations, holding their heads up, and all the sweet peas spreading in their bowls, tinged violet, snow white, pale, as if it were the evening and girls in muslin frocks came out to pick sweet peas and roses off after the superb summer's day. With its almost blue-black sky, its delphiniums, its carnations, its arum lilies was over. And it was the moment between six and seven when every flower, roses, carnations, irises, lilac, glows, white, violet, red, deep orange. Every flower seems to burn by itself, softly, purely in the misty buds. And how she loved the gray-white moths spinning in and out, over the cherry pine, over the evening primroses. And as she began to go with Miss Pym, from jar to jar, choosing nonsense, nonsense, she said to herself, more and more gently, as if this beauty, this scent, this color, and Miss Pym liking her, trusting her, were a wave which she let flow over her and surmount that hatred, that monster, surmounted all. And it lifted her and up when, oh, a pistol shot in the street outside. Dear those motor cars, said Miss Pym, going to the window to look, and coming back and smiling apologetically with her hands full of sweet peas as if those motor cars, those tires of motor cars were all her fault. The violent explosion which made Mrs. Dalloway jump and Miss Pym go to the window and apologize came from a motor car which had drawn to the side of the pavement precisely opposite Mulberry's shop window. Passers-by, who of course stopped and stared, had just time to see a face of the very greatest importance against the dove gray upholstery before a male hand drew the blind and there was nothing to be seen except a square of dove gray. 
Yet rumors were at once in circulation from the middle of Bond Street to Oxford Street on one side, to Atkinson's scent shop on the other, passing invisibly and audibly like a cloud, veil-like upon hills, falling indeed with something of a cloud's sudden sobriety, and stillness upon faces which a second before had been utterly disorderly. But now mystery had brushed them with her wing. They had heard the voice of authority. The spirit of religion was abroad with her eyes bandaged tight and her lips gaping wide, but nobody knew whose face had been seen. Was it the Prince of Wales, the Queen's, the Prime Minister's? Whose face was it? Nobody knew. Edgar J. Watkins, with his roll of lead piping round his arm, said audibly, humorously, of course, the Prime Minister's car, Septimus Warren Smith, who found himself unable to pass, heard him. Septimus Warren Smith, aged about 30, pale-faced, beak-nosed, wearing brown shoes and a shabby overcoat with hazel eyes, which had that look of apprehension in them, which makes complete strangers apprehensive too. The world raised its whip. Where will it descend? Everything had come to a standstill. The throb of the motor engines sounded like a pulse irregularly drumming through an entire body. The sun became extraordinarily hot because the motor car had stopped outside of Mulberry's shop window. Old ladies on the tops of omnibuses spread their black parasols. Here a green, here a red parasol opened with a little pop. Mrs. Dalloway coming to the window with her arms full of sweet peas, looked out with her little pink face pursed in inquiry. Everyone looked at the motor car. Septimus looked. Boys on bicycles sprang off. Traffic accumulated. And there the motor car stood with drawn blinds. And upon them, a curious pattern like a tree, Septimus thought. And this gradual drawing together of everything to one center before his eyes as if some horror had come almost to the surface and was about to burst into flames, terrified him. The world wavered and quivered and threatened to burst into flames. It is I who am blocking the way, he thought. Was he not being looked at and pointed at? Was he not waited there? Rooted to the pavement for a purpose? But for what purpose? Let us go, Septimus, said his wife, a little woman, a little woman with large eyes and a sallow pointed face, an Italian girl. But Lucrezia herself could not help looking at the motor car and the tree pattern on the blinds. Was it the queen in there? The queen going shopping? The chauffeur, who had been opening something, turned something, shutting something, got on to the box. Come on, said Lucrezia. But her husband, for they had been married four, five years now, jumped, started, and said, All right, angrily, as if she had interrupted him. People must notice, people must see, people, she thought, looking at the crowd, staring at the motor car, the English people with their children and their horses and their clothes, which she admired in a way, but they were people now. And because Septimus had said, I will kill myself, an awful thing to say. Suppose they had heard him. She looked at the crowd, help, help, she wanted to cry out to butchers and boys and women, help. Only last autumn, she and Septimus had stood on the embankment, wrapped in the same cloak, Septimus reading a paper instead of talking. She had laughed in the old man's face, he saw them, but failure one conceals. She must take him away into some part. Now we will cross, she said. She had a right to his arm, though. It was without feeling. Uh, he would give her, who was so simple, so impulsive, only 24, without friends in England, who had left Italy for his sake, a piece of bone. The motor car, with its blinds drawn, and an air of inscrutable reserve proceeded towards Piccadilly still gazed at, still ruffling the faces of both sides of the street with the same dark breath of veneration, whether for queen, prince, or prime minister, nobody knew. The face itself had been seen only once by three people for a few seconds. Even the sex was now in dispute. But there could be no doubt that greatness was seated within. Greatness was passing, hidden, down Bond Street, removed only by a hand's breath from ordinary people who might now, for the first time and last time, be within speaking distance of the majesty of England, of the enduring symbol of the state which will be known to curious antiquaries, sifting the ruins of time, when London is a grass-grown path, and all those hurrying along the pavement this Wednesday morning are but bones with a few wedding rings mixed up in their dust and the gold stoppings of innumerable decayed teeth. The face in the motor car will then be known. It is probably the queen, thought Mrs. Dalloway, coming out of Mulberry's with her flowers, the queen. And for a second, she wore a look of extreme dignity, standing by the flower shop in the sunlight while the car passed at a foot's pace with its blinds drawn. The queen going to some hospital. The queen opening some bazaar, thought Clarissa. The crush was terrific for the time of day. Lords, Ascot, Hurlingham. Was that it? What was it? She wondered. 
for the street was blocked, the British middle classes sitting sideways on the tops of omnibuses with parcels and umbrellas. Yes, even furs on a day like this were, she thought, more ridiculous, more unlike anything there has ever been than one could conceive. And the queen held herself up. The queen herself unable to pass. Clarissa was suspended on one side of Brook Street. Sir John Buckhurst, the old judge on the other, with a car between them. Sir John had laid down the law for years, and like the well-dressed woman, with the chauffeur leaning ever so slightly, said or showed something to the policeman who saluted and raised his arm and jerked his head and moved the omnibus to the side and the car passed through. Slowly and very silently, it took its way. Clarissa guessed. Clarissa knew, of course, she had seen something white, magical, circular in the footman's hand. A disc inscribed with the name, the Queen's, the Prince of Wales, the Prime Minister's, which by force of its own luster burnt its way through. Clarissa saw the car diminishing, disappearing, to blaze among candelabras, glittering stars, breasts stiff with oak leaves, Hugh Whitbread and all his colleagues, the gentlemen of England, that night in Buckingham Palace, and Clarissa too gave a party. She stiffened a little, so she would stand at the top of her stairs. The car had gone, but it had left a slight ripple, which flowed through glove shops and hat shops and tailor shops on both sides of Bond Street. For 30 seconds, all heads were inclined the same way to the window, choosing a pair of gloves, should they be to the elbow or above it, lemon or pale gray? Ladies stopped. When the sentence was finished, something had happened. Something so trifling in single instances that no mathematical instrument, though capable of transmitting shocks in China, could register the vibration, yet in its fullness rather formidable, and in its common appeal emotional. For in all the hat shops and tailor shops, strangers looked at each other and thought of the dead, of the flag, of empire. In a public house, in a back street, a colonial insulted the house of Windsor, which led to words, broken beer glasses, and general shindy, which echoed strangely across the way in the ears of girls buying white underlinen threaded with pure white ribbon for their weddings. For the surface agitation of the passing car as it sunk grazed something very profound. Gliding across Piccadilly, the car turned down St. James Street, tall men, men of robust physique, well-dressed men with their tailcoats and their white slips and their hair raked back, who, for reasons difficult to discriminate, were standing in the bow window of Brooks with their hands behind the tails of their coats, looking out, perceived instinctively that greatness was passing and the pale light of the immortal presence fell upon them as it had fallen upon Clarissa Dalloway. At once they stood even straighter and removed their heads and seemed ready to attend their sovereign, if need be, to the cannon's mouth, as their ancestors had done before them. The white busts and the little tables in the background covered with copies of the Tafler and siphons of soda water seemed to approve, seemed to indicate the flowing corn and the manor houses of England, and to return the frail hum of the motor wheels as the walls of a whispering gallery returned to a single voice, expanded and made sonorous by the might of a whole cathedral. Shawled Mall Pratt, with her flowers on the pavement, wished the dear boy well. It was the Prince of Wales for certain, and would have tossed the price of a pot of beer, a bunch of roses, into St. James Street, out of sheer lightheartedness and contempt of poverty, had she not seen the constable's eye upon her, discouraging an old Irish woman's loyalty. The sentries of St. James saluted. Queen Alexandra's policemen approved. A small crowd, meanwhile, had gathered at the gates of Buckingham Palace, listlessly, yet confidently, poor people, all of them, they waited, looked at the palace itself with the flag flying, at Victoria, billowing on her mound, admiring her shelves of running water, her geranium, singled out from the motor cars, and the mall first, this one, then that, bestowed emotion, vainly upon commoners out for a drive, recalled their tribute to keep it unspent while their car passed in that and all the time let rumor accumulate in their veins and thrill the nerves in their thighs of the thought of royalty looking at them, the queen bowing, the prince saluting, at the thought of the heavenly life divinely bestowed upon kings, of the equerries and deep curtsies, of the queen's old dollhouse, the prince Mary, married to an Englishman, and the prince, ah, the prince, who took wonderfully, they said, after old King Edward, but was ever so much slimmer. The prince lived at St. James, but he might come along in the morning to visit his mother. So Sarah Bletchley said, with her baby in her arms, tipping her foot up and down as though she were by her own fender in Pimlico, but keeping her eyes on the mall while Emily Coates ranged over the palace windows and thought of the housemaids, the innumerable housemaids, the bedrooms, the innumerable bedrooms, joined by an elderly gentleman with an Aberdeen terrier, 
by men without occupation, the crowd increased. Little Mr. Bowley, who had rooms in the Albany and who was sealed with wax over the deeper sources of life, but could be unsealed suddenly, inappropriately, sentimentally, by this sort of thing, poor women waiting to see the queen go past, poor women, nice little children, orphans, widows, the war, tut tut, actually had tears in his eyes. A breeze flaunting over so warmly down the mall, through the thin trees, past the bronze heroes, lifted some flag flying in the British breast of Mr. Bowley, and he raised his hat as the car turned into the mall and held it high as the car approached, and let the poor mothers of Pimlico press close to him and stood very upright. The car came on. Suddenly, Mrs. Coates looked up into the sky. The sound of an airplane bored ominously into the ears of the crowd. There it was, coming over the trees, letting out white smoke from behind, which curled and twisted, actually writing something, making letters in the sky. Everyone looked up. Dropping dead down, the airplane soared straight up, curved in a loop, raced, sank, rose, and whatever it did, wherever it went, out fluttered behind it a thick, ruffled bar of white smoke, which curled and wreathed upon the sky in letters. But what letters? A C, was it? An E, then an L? Only for a moment did they lie still. Then they moved and melted and were rubbed out into the sky and the airplane shot further away and again in a fresh space of sky began writing a K and E. A Y perhaps? Glaxo, said Mrs. Coates in a strained, awe-stricken voice, gazing straight up and her baby lying stiff and white in her arms gazed straight up. Cremo, murmured Mrs. Bletchley like a sleepwalker. With his hat held out perfectly still in his hand, Mr. Bowley gazed straight up. All down the mall, people were standing and looking up into the sky. As they looked, the whole world became perfectly silent, and a flight of goals crossed the sky, first one goal leading, then another, and in this extraordinary silence and peace, in this pallor, in this purity, bells struck eleven times, the sound fading up there among the goals. The airplane turned and raced and swooped exactly where it liked, swiftly, freely, like a skater. That's an E, said Mrs. Bletchley, or a dancer. It's toffee, murmured Mr. Bowley, and the car went in at the gates and nobody looked at it, and shutting off the smoke, away and away it rushed, and the smoke faded and assembled itself round the broad white shapes of the clouds. It had gone. It was behind the clouds. There was no sound. The clouds to which the letters E, G, or L had attached themselves moved freely, as if destined to cross from west to east on a mission of the greatest importance, which would never be revealed. Yet certainly so it was, a mission of the greatest importance. Then suddenly, as a train comes out of a tunnel, the airplane rushed out of the clouds again, the sound boring into the ears of all people in the mall, in the Green Park, in Piccadilly, in Regent Street, in Regent's Park, and the bar of smoke curved behind and it dropped down, and it soared and wrote one letter after another, but what word was it writing? Lucrezia Warren Smith, sitting by her husband's side on a seat in Regent's Park in the Broadwalk, looked up. Look, look, Septimus, she cried, for Dr. Holmes had told her to make her husband, who had nothing whatever seriously the matter with him, but was a little out of sorts, take an interest in things outside himself. So, thought Septimus, looking up, they are signaling to me. Not indeed actual words, that is. He could not read the language yet, but it was plain enough. This beauty, this exquisite beauty, and tears filled his eyes as he looked at the smoke words languishing and melting in the sky and bestowing upon him in their inexhaustible charity and laughing goodness, one shape after another of unimaginable beauty and signaling their intention to provide him for nothing forever, for looking merely with beauty more beauty. Tears ran down his cheeks. It was toffee. They were advertising toffee. A nursemaid told Rezia. Together they began to spell T-O-F-K-R, said the nursemaid, and Septimus heard her say K-R close to his ear, deeply, softly, like a mellow organ, but with a roughness in her voice like a grasshopper's, which rasped his spine deliciously and sent running up into his brain waves of sound which Concussing broke, a marvelous discovery indeed, that the human voice in certain atmospheric conditions, for one must above all be scientific, can quicken trees into life. Happily, Rezia put her hand with a tremendous weight on his knee so that he was weighted down, transfixed, 
or the excitement of the elm trees rising and falling, rising and falling with all their leaves all right, and the color thinning and thickening from blue to green of a hollow wave, like plumes on horses' heads, feathers on ladies, so proudly they rose and fell, so superbly would have sent him mad. But he would not go mad. He would shut his eyes. He would see no more. But they beckoned. Leaves were alive. Trees were alive. And the leaves being connected by millions of fibers with his own body, there on the seat, fanned it up and down. When the branch stretched, he too made that statement. The sparrows fluttering, rising, and falling in jagged fountains were part of the pattern. The white and blue, barred and black branches. Sounds made harmonies with premeditation. The spaces between them were as significant as the sounds. A child cried. Rightly, far away, a horn sounded. All taken together meant the birth of a new religion. Septimus, said Rezia, who started violently. People must notice. I'm going to walk to the fountain and back, she said, for she could stand it no longer. Dr. Holmes might say there was nothing the matter. Far rather would she that he were dead. She could not sit beside him when he stared so and did not see her and made everything terrible sky and tree, children playing, dragging carts, blowing whistles, falling down, all were terrible. And he would not kill himself, and she could tell no one. Septimus has been working too hard. That was all she could say to her own mother. To love makes one solitary, she thought. She could tell nobody, not even Septimus now. And looking back, she saw him sitting in his shabby overcoat alone on the seat, hunched up, staring, and it was cowardly for a man to say he would kill himself. But Septimus had fought. He was brave. He was not Septimus now. She put on her lace collar. She put on her new hat, and he never noticed. And he was happy without her. Nothing could make her happy without him. Nothing. He was selfish. So men are. For he was not ill. Dr. Holmes said there was nothing the matter with him. She spread her hand before her. Look, her wedding ring slipped. She had grown so thin. It was she who suffered, but she had nobody to tell. Far was Italy, and the white houses, and the room where her sisters sat making hats. And the streets crowded every evening with people walking, laughing out loud, not half alive like people here, huddled up in bath chairs, looking at a few ugly flowers stuck in pots. For you should see the Milan gardens, she said aloud, but to whom? There was nobody, her words faded, so a rocket fades, it sparks, having grazed their way into the night, surrender to it. Dark descends, pours over the outlines of houses and flowers, bleak hillsides soften and fall in. But though they are gone, the night is full of them, robbed of color, blank of windows. They exist more ponderously, give out what the frank daylight fails to transmit. The trouble and suspense of things conglomerated there in the darkness, huddled together in the darkness, reft of the belief which dawn brings when washing the walls white and gray, spotting each window pane, lifting the mist from the fields, showing the red-brown cows peacefully grazing, all is once more decked out to the eye, exists again. I am alone. I am alone, she cried, by the fountain in Regent's Park, staring at the Indian and his cross. As perhaps at midnight, when all boundaries are lost, the country reverts to its ancient shape, as the Romans saw it, lying cloudy when they landed and the hills had no names. Rivers wound they knew not where. Such was her darkness, when suddenly, as if a shelf was shot forth and she stood on it, she said how she was his wife, married years ago in Milan, his wife, and would never, never tell that he was mad. Turning, the shelf fell. Down, down she dropped, for he was gone, she thought. Gone as he threatened to kill himself, to throw himself under a cart, but no. There he was, still sitting alone on the seat, in his shabby overcoat, his legs crossed, staring, talking aloud. Men must not cut down trees. There is a God. He noted such revelations on the backs of envelopes. Change the world. No one kills from hatred. Make it known, he wrote it down. He waited. He listened. A sparrow perched on the railing opposite chirped Septimus, Septimus, four or five times over and went on, drawing its notes out to sing freshly and piercingly in Greek words, how there is no crime, and joined by another sparrow, they sang in voices prolonged and piercing in Greek words, from trees in the meadow of life beyond a river where the dead walk, how there is no death. There was his hand, there the dead, white things were assembling beside the railings opposite, but he dared not look. Evans was behind the railings. 
What did you say? said Rezia suddenly, sitting down by him. Interrupted again. She was always interrupting. Away from people, they must get away from people, he said, jumping up. Right away over there, where there were chairs beneath a tree and a long slope of the park dipped like a length of green stuff with a ceiling cloth of, of blue and pink smoke high above, and there was a rampart of far irregular houses hazed in smoke. The traffic hummed in a circle, and on the right, dun-colored animals stretched long necks over the zoo palings, barking, howling. There they sat down under a tree. Look, she implored him, pointing at the little troop of boys carrying cricket stumps, and one shuffled, spun round on his heel and shuffled, as if he were acting a clown at the music hall. Look, she implored him, for Dr. Holmes had told her to make him notice real things, go to a music hall, play cricket. That was the very game, Dr. Holmes said, a nice out-of-door game, the very game for her husband. Look, she repeated. Look, the unseen bade him. The voice which now communicated with him, who was the greatest of mankind, Septimus, lately taken from life to death, the Lord who had come to renew society, who lay like a coverlet, a snow blanket smitten only by the sun, forever wasted, suffering forever, the scapegoat, the eternal sufferer, but he did not want it. He moaned, putting from him with a wave of his hand that eternal suffering, that eternal loneliness. Look, she repeated, for he must not talk aloud to himself outdoors. Oh, look, she implored him. But what was there to look at? A few sheep, that was all. The way to Regent's Park tube station. Could they tell her the way to Regent's Park tube station? Maisie Johnson wanted to know. She was only up from Edinburgh two days ago. Not this way, over there, Rezia exclaimed, waving her aside, lest she should see Septimus. Both seemed queer, Maisie Johnson thought. Everything seemed very queer. In London for the first time, come to take up a post at her uncle's Leadenhall Street. And now walking through Regent's Park in the morning, this couple on the chairs gave her quite a turn. The young woman seemed foreign, the man looking queer. So that should be very odd, she would still remember and make it jangle again among her memories how she had walked through Regent's Park on a fine summer's morning 50 years ago. For she was only 19 and had got her way at last to come to London, and now how queer it was. This couple she had asked the way of, and the girl started and jerked her hand, and the man, he seemed awfully odd, quarreling perhaps, parting forever. Perhaps something was up, she knew. And now all these people, for she returned to the broad walk, the stone basins, the prim flowers, the old men and women, invalids, most of them in bath chairs, all seemed after Edinburgh so queer. And Maisie Johnson, as she joined that gently trudging, vaguely gazing, breeze-kissed company, squirrels perching and preening, sparrow fountains fluttering for crumbs, dogs busy with the railings, busy with each other, while the soft warm air washed over them and lent to the fixed unsurprised gaze with which they received life, something whimsical and mollified, Maisie Johnson positively felt she must cry, oh, for that young woman on the seat had given her quite a turn. Something was up, she knew. Horror, horror, she wanted to cry. She had left her people. They had warned her what would happen. Why hadn't she stayed at home? She cried, twisting the knob of the iron railing. That girl, thought Mrs. Dempster, who saved crusts for the squirrels and often ate her lunch at Regent's Park, don't know a thing yet. And really, it seemed to her better to be a little stout, a little slack, a little moderate in expectations. Percy drank. Well, better to have a son, thought Mrs. Dempster. She had had a hard time of it and couldn't help smiling at a girl like that. You'll get married, for you're pretty enough, thought Mrs. Dempster. Get married, she thought. Oh, the cooks, and so on. Every man has his ways, but, but whether I'd have chosen quite like that if I could have known, thought Mrs. Dempster, and could not help wishing to whisper a word to Maisie Johnson, to feel on the creased pouch of her worn old face the kiss of pity, for it's been a hard life, thought Mrs. Dempster. What hadn't she, what hadn't she given to it? Roses, figure, her feet too. She drew the knobbed lumps beneath her skirt. Roses, she thought sardonically, all trash, my dear. For really, what with eating, drinking, and mating, the bad days and good, life had been no mere matter of roses. And what was more, let me tell you, Carrie Dempster had no wish to change her lot with any woman's in Kentish town. But, she implored, pity, pity, for the loss of roses. Pity, she asked of Maisie Johnson, standing by the hyacinth beds. Ah, but that airplane, hadn't Mrs. Dempster always longed to see foreign parts? 
She had a nephew, a missionary, at sword and shot. She always went on the sea at Margaret, not out of sight of land. But she had no patience with women who were afraid of water. It swept and fell. Her stomach was in her mouth. Up again, there is a fine young feller abroad of it, Mrs. Dempster wagered. And away and away it went, fast and fading. Away and away the airplane shot, soaring over Greenwich and all the masts, over the little island of gray churches, St. Paul's, and the rest, till on either side of London, fields spread out and dark brown woods, where adventurous thrushes, hopping boldly, glancing quickly, snatched the snail and tapped him on a stone once, twice, thrice. Away and away the airplane shot, till it was nothing but a bright spark, an aspiration, a concentration, a symbol. So it seemed to Mr. Bentley, vigorously rolling his strip of turf at Greenwich, of a man's soul, of his determination, thought Mr. Bentley, sweeping round the cedar tree to get outside his body, beyond his house, by means of thought, Einstein, speculation, mathematics, the Mandelian theory, away the airplane shot. Then, while a seedy-looking nondescript man carrying a leather bag stood on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral and hesitated for within what balm, how great a welcome, how many tombs with banners waving over them, tokens of victories not over armies, but over, he thought, that plaguey spirit of truth-seeking, which leaves me at present without a situation, and more than that, the cathedral offers company, he thought, invites you to membership of a society. Great men belong to it, martyrs have died for it. Why not enter in, he thought, put this leather bag stuffed with pamphlets before an altar, a cross, the symbol of something which has soared beyond seeking and questing and looking of words together, has become all spirit, disembodied, ghostly. Why not enter in, he thought. And while he hesitated, out flew the airplane over Ludgate Circus. It was strange. It was still. Not a sound was to be heard above the traffic, unguided, it seemed, sped of its own free will. And now, curving up and up, straight up like something mounting in ecstasy, in pure delight, out from behind, poured white smoke, looping, writing a T, an O, an F. So that's where I'm going to stop for now. We're about a fifth, a fifth of the way through the novel. And yeah, I'm, I'm excited to keep reading this. And I, I guess, um, like what I mentioned earlier, this novel... This novelette, this uh, novella, the short novel, uh, does a lot with stream of consciousness. And as you can see, the as I mentioned earlier, we get a lot of interiority of not just Mrs. Dalloway, but a lot of people. Virginia Woolf does something that in creative writing, uh, people will call head hopping, where you're you're jumping from perspective to perspective, from one person to another, and you're getting like that happens in different novels but it's kind of, it kind of compounds and kind of complicates the use of, of stream of consciousness writing in this novel in particular, because you're not only getting the interiority and the, the stream of consciousness thinking of Mrs. Dalloway or Clarissa, you're getting the interiority of all these people who have seen this motorcade of the, the royal, this royal motorcade driving up to Buckingham Palace, and also the people, the same people seeing this airplane circling up in the sky, uh, doing an advertisement for for whatever the advertisement is. It isn't clear what the advertisement is. And that's that's one thing that we see a lot with in-stream of consciousness writing. Along with getting other people's perspectives, we're not getting a full picture of what's going on. And so it leaves, it leaves room for confusion. So what's happening in the novel so far, we've got Mrs. Dalloway and she has a party and she's going to the store and going to different places to pick up stuff for this party that she's having because it's the end of World War One, and everybody's happier quote-unquote happier and while she's going there we see things happen outside of the shop windows as she's going to these different places to pick up these things for this party that she's throwing along with that we see a we hear the pistol shot which ends up being a the exhaust you know a shot coming from the the exhaust pipe of a motorcade that is supposedly the royal family going to somebody somebody from the royal family going to buckingham palace and in the mix of all that we also have this airplane doing an advertisement uh, up in the sky. So we get Rezia and her husband, and her husband is a is a a veteran of World War One and is has is experiencing shell shock. And Rezia does not know how to get through to her husband and doesn't know how to live with her husband because her husband wants to kill himself. And so we got all that mixed in. We got a lot of other perspectives as well, but like that's kind of the gist of what's happened so far in the novel. And I'm just excited to keep reading it because there's, there's so much going on. It can get you know, it can get really hard with stream of consciousness writing. It can get really hard to kind of 
sort through what's happening, but I hope that I can help people interested in reading Mrs. Dalloway to kind of sift through what's happening through all the stream of consciousness writing and also see how stream of consciousness writing can be used in an effective way to, to bring about specific themes that, that an author or, you know, you as a creative writer or, you know, somebody as a creative writer can use to better your writing. Anyway, because stream of consciousness writing, as I, as I read earlier in the Wikipedia page that I read about stream of consciousness, it, does, it, it wasn't, it isn't just a modernist thing. It is used even today with writing. Like we see, we see authors using stream of elements of stream of consciousness writing, even in, in writing today. So anyway, I'm going to leave it, leave it at that today. And I'm going to come back tomorrow and the next day and the next day. I'm going to read this novel in the next few days because it's been on my list of books to read. And, I, and I'm, I'm going to be posting today, tomorrow, the next day, and the next couple of days just to get this all figured out. Anyway. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a special issue of the of the podcast, and then I'm going to go back to doing short short stories after I'm done reading Mrs. Dalloway because this is kind of also a like I said a project for me because I just want to I'm I, I want I want to read and I've wanted to read um, I've wanted to to I've had to read Mrs. Dalloway before in classes but it was so quick because I had to read it on a deadline that I wasn't able to get as much out of it so this is. Uh, this is going to be a fun experience for all of us involved here. So anyway, I will see all of you later and have a good rest of your day.